Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to a brand new podcast. Max, I wasn't in sync. No, that's close enough. I am Stuart Webb, also known as Inflatable Dardic Online, and I've just come back from an exciting weekend with my hero, Sir Roger Moore. So I'm on Cloud Nine, so this is going to be a very cheerful podcast, but I can't do it alone. For one man for whom I would buy a delicatessen in stainless steel, Tom McNally. Oh, thank you very much. And if you've not seen For Your Eyes Only, that preceding sentence will make no sense. I, I've that. never seen For Your it's Eyes Only. Anyone who's seen that film will be laughing now. What are we going to talk about today, Stuart? Well, uh, other than, of course, my celebrity friends, of which I have a great many, we are doing a retrospective comic analysis, because obviously we talked about more than we see on the last one, as I'm sure many of you know. And uh, I thought it might be interesting to go back to the beginning, uh, the backdoor pilot for more than CI, that is Transformers Chaos Theory. Oh, way back in the midst of 2011. <laughs> so this is uh, towards what I like to call the fag end of yeah, the Mike Costa run. I can't remember that far back. <laughs> uh, were you reading the Costa era as it happened? No, I'd given up. I saw, uh, I, I, bought, I bought the Nick Roche one, the 13 one, where Megatron gets up and shoots Hot Rod and... Um, of course, uh, this is the first thing that James Roberts did without Nick Roche. Uh, did, did you come back for this one as well, or uh, did you? Yeah, any- yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty excited for this. Of course, I knew about Eugenesis and I knew about Transmasters UK, and you know, just the way Nick Roche had jumped over from there to the official comics. I thought James Roberts and Alexia Smith should also make the jump. So yeah, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty excited for this. It is actually interesting how uh, very few writers, fab writers, have made the transition to prose with Transformers, considering virtually all the artists were fan artists. Uh, there seems to be like a, a writer barrier. Four, five people at most? That's not a very impressive track record. Compared well, to everybody fans. describes themselves as a big fan when they start on the property. Well, yes, even people who've had it turns out don't know who the protector bots are. Never forget, never forget. <laughs> so it's always been a bit of a surprise that that hasn't been built because you've got enthusiastic people who know the property and they're cheap. I love James Roberts's run on Transformers and uh, I think it was a good and proper thing to have happened. But I am a little uneasy with the morality of uh, fans making that jump for exactly that reason. It seems that comics companies really love to fire their old trusted hands and hire young fans who will work for nothing because they love the property. And I don't think that's had a good overall effect on, well, any industry that, turn, that chooses to do that. But in this case, I but, think but it in this case, it, it did equate to the second of my Costa. So we can't... <laughs> Oh, I've nailed my colours for mass already. And but, I, I, uh, I just hope that, that James Roberts can afford to feed his family, especially with the poor dollar to pound exchange rate. <laughs> oh, that's sort of brought the whole thing down a bit, hasn't it now? <laughs> I was, well, yeah, fat writers are like, oh, slave labour. 
Oh, we've been there, I suppose, the counter-argument is that uh, rising for licensed property, uh, your stuff will usually sell much, much better than your original material will. I know the various Star Trek and Doctor Who writers, all three talk about how their Star Trek and Doctor Who stuff sells so much better than their other stuff. It's a, a, a brand that sells rather than the author's name. Yeah, but, I mean, do they get royalties? I believe that varies. I would imagine with something like Transformers that you don't get royalties, but uh, uh, contracts obviously vary. Okay, uh, let's move on to the issues themselves. Yes, well, uh, what I have here in my hand is Peace in Our Time. No, it isn't. It's uh, the original script for both issues of Chaos Theory. It has a, a few interesting differences from the final version I'll talk about first. Obviously, originally it was just pictures, just the Megatron issue. Uh, but then became a two-parter. Do you know why it became a two-parter? So Alex Milne could draw both their faces. It became a two-parter because Hasbro asked IDW to do a comic where Optimus Prime coined the name Autobot. Oh, I knew that was a request. I didn't realise that's what spun it off. Uh, that's quite funny. That's what, like, uh, a Hasbro mandate that worked out quite well in the end, which is a increasingly rare thing. Especially uh, since he doesn't really coin it either. He, he just says what it what the definition of it is and goes I've got a new definition yeah it's a very awkward beat and it's interesting that the entire issue revolves around it I've got to say that's why the issue came into existence I'm sure uh, James Roberts did us have a problem with doing a, an Optimus Prime based flashback issue hmm. but uh, the first part is interesting in that it's all set on uh, Earth rather than in space uh, as is the final script for the first issue actually which means different characters have different lines because Prowl is there and all the stuff Ironhide says in the final issue is said by Prowl oh there he is Perceptor's yeah. giving the thumbs up which means yeah, yeah that, that's uh, the original script that's Prowl in there because of course as we're on Earth Prowl is there oh yeah actually that is a, that's a very Prowl line uh, interestingly the second script they'd obviously decided they would be in space by that point because they're flying in space rather than Earth and uh, all the dialogue is as it is in the final issue the second script Hot Rod talks about having had a go at Optimus even though the first script is Ultra Magnus does it but in the original uh, pitch it's all on Earth it's about how all the other characters interact with Megatron and they come and talk to him. And uh, Impactor is one of them. Oh, he okay. Impactor with and uh, steals Megatron's Decepticon badge and gives it to Guzzle. And the Decepticon Justice League attack Amiga Supreme to try and get Megatron back. That fails. And it's only like in the last third of this synopsis that it's a conversation between Megatron and Optimus. That is way too much going on. The second part is quite different in that the guy who the villains are coming to rescue is just some guy. It's not Whirl. It's just a new character. All the stuff establishing Optimus Prime as a cop is in the second issue rather than the first. Uh, oddly enough, overall, though, it's more like the final issue than the, uh, the synopsis for the first one is. Uh, so I think you may have rewritten the first one simply to lead better into the second part. Okay. And, uh, he's also simply said to look like he does in uh, Spotlight Blur. Oh, oh, that was that was eating away at him for years, wasn't it? Because obviously he looks like he does his Storm Brigade in the final comic, and he has the guns on his arms in Storm Brigade's eyes. There's a really odd moment where he's supposed to be an arm, and there's a line where he has to go, all I've got is these guns on my arms that are just decorative. Yeah, that's a <laughs> really... I quite like the idea of them having decorative guns, but like... Why would he say that to himself now? When, whenever we talk about these issues, we always talk about how John Barber is the one obsessed with continuity and obsessed with the details and will go to great lengths to get them. But I think, I think they feed off each other 
uh, James and John. So yes, yeah, so, oh, uh, I suppose the other thing script-wise to mention uh, is it from this script, but it's from the script he was selling this year at Auto Assembly for uh, part one of World Shut Your Mouth, where he mentions in the notes how he'd always, always wanted to do the Megatron on trial story when he was working on this, and uh, he read, oh, my costume's going to have Megatron be captured. He thought that was a story my costume was going to do. And certainly in this issue, you can see how that's what he was thinking, because there's all that stuff about what they do if they put Megatron on trial. Yeah, and then they don't. Sort of that's thing. pretty extraordinary to me, that fa- like how little Costa and Roberts were talking to each other then, or yeah, how little Costa was sharing, or maybe just didn't know. This the, the main drawback to Chaos Theory as a story is that the rationale behind Megatron surrendering, which is the whole th- thrust of the story, like, oh, why did Megatron surrender? Jeez, we don't know. It, it's used as a big reveal, like, because he wanted to get to Cybertron so all of his buddies could come out of his chest. Is that why he surrendered? I know he didn't. That, make- yeah, he just wanted to get to Cybertron. He couldn't be bothered to actually trade? I don't know. I mean, charitably, you could say he wanted to mess with Prime or that he was suicidal and just can't help having a backup plan. He does quite explicitly goad Prime into executing him here. And maybe that was his plan. I don't know. I, I suppose the, the other cost of thing to mention is when he that famous uh, interview with the Underbase, he very simply said he doesn't like flashback stories because he thinks they have no tension or drama in them. Do you think that was a little bit of a dig at this one? Uh, but he's A, both the most popular story in his entire run, and it's not by him. And uh, B, is all flashbacks. I don't know. That seems a bit more mean-spirited than he ever came across. It didn't seem to be... Like a bitter, resentful dude. He just... Uh, I think he was probably saying more like he doesn't like to to write them. Oh, is he a nice man, Tom? <laughs> well, you know, it's easy to put Mike Costa over the coals, but the thing is about that, yeah, that infamous real. interview, like, kind of, he was opening up. He was, like, being kind of candid and honest, and he wasn't being mean or... He, was, he didn't feel embattled. He was just like, yeah, I'm finishing this now. I found it a bit hard, and, um, you know, I wish you all the best. And uh, it seems seems wrong to put that forward as like a character flaw well let, let's see if uh, both james roberts and alex mill lead any defending men as we look at chaos theory itself oh yeah as i said at the time i hadn't read any of the surrounding material so i sort of came into this as just a two-parter uh that was the same for you yes you hadn't read any of the uh other than the nick roach uh, issue probably the previews that were coming out so i i didn't know why megatron was on the ship and uh, doing things but uh you know whatever would it take work for you as a, as a completely standalone two-parter, or did you find the continuity stuff uh, off-putting as you were reading it? No, I think it doesn't work as a, as a standalone two-parter. It's it's always the trouble when you kind of like recommending more than meets the eye. Like, oh, well, you've got to go back and read Chaos Theory, but it's so mired in this part of the story. I mean, admirably so. It's it's, it's cleverly integrated. It, yeah, it, it doesn't stand alone, I think. If the series had started like this, it would be really intriguing. Like, whoa, some stuff must have happened. Jeez. But then, oh, you know, it did, but it wasn't very interesting. So other than the fact that Bumblebee was acting as if he mattered, uh, I thought he flowed uh, pretty well without uh, knowing any of the extra stuff. Uh, most of that seemed like uh, fairly... It was like, well, they've got Megatron. What happens once you've got Megatron? How they got him didn't feel like uh, it was significant. Uh, so, I remember the online here and there, he didn't, I didn't find him off putting myself. 
I suppose they do give uh, enough uh, hints in the text. They say that he surrendered. Uh, they say they're not quite sure why he surrendered, and everyone seems <laughs> to be. <laughs> and they, they, you know, they're pretty sure that he's up to something. Uh, this begins what will become a fairly regular James Roberts trend of what I like to call actual Megatronology, uh, where he sort of goes back into Megatron's past and fills out a lot of the details of sort of Megatronology. And again, like, you know, it is very polite and probably correct for Roberts to go so far to incorporate Megatron Origin. Uh, but I don't think anyone really would have minded if he'd gone against it. Uh, even Megatron in this is not in any way, shape or form the same character who was in Megatron Origin. Uh, that guy, he's every other line of dialogue, is her. When he's at work, uh, he's not talking about his, you know, agiprop. Uh, so there's a big thing, of course, uh, Impactor uh, starts as Megatron's BFF. That's really inspired. It sets up something, and it's still a story they haven't really told. Like, oh, how did Impactor end up in Autobot then? I guess this is... That says something about Impactor that's quite interesting, especially in the light of him being a war criminal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those ideas you wouldn't have thought of beforehand, but as soon as it happens, you go, oh, that makes sense. Hmm. But, but I the other thing to note is that he's uh, uh, turned out to be very important later on these two pages as part of a more of a BTI story. Uh, uh, this is the first appearance of Rung. Yes, first appearance of Rung, first mention of the Knights of Cybertron, and also the first mention of Nominus Prime, and I think Macadams in this continuity. And I, I want to point out that uh, I am sick of Macadams as a concept in Transformers. Uh, it's... It's one of those cute little jokes that's just been ground into a joyless paste, but it's very un- unobtrusive. Ah, I, I never. You have more venom for Macadams than you do for Mike Costa. <laughs> <laughs> they knew more than the eye was coming at this point. Uh, so oh, did they? It simply says uh, when Rung appears, this will hopefully be a character uh, one of the new ongoings. So his design is important. I'll send you more suggestions for him later on. I suppose they, they must know, because they mention the Knights of Cybertron in yeah, kind of a clumsy way. So we have a present-day stuff when uh, Prime and Megatron are talking. Uh, which one, is this their first big chat in IDW continuity? I can't they, think of another one. Yeah, but they never really got chance to meet Drew Furman stuff, except uh, Drew that battle in the... Uh, in oh, that, in, in, in Brasnia. Yeah, but they don't really talk. There's a bit, it's like, oh, Megatron, you're different now. And like, Prime, well, you know, you're a, you're a guy, aren't you? You're a real guy. Oh, I think obviously we must have met, uh, had a conversation during the cost stuff, because they didn't mention it here when uh, he says, uh, last time we spoke when you surrendered, uh, you were talking bollocks. <laughs> uh, I think this is the most substantial meeting between the two of them up to this point. Uh, uh, I think ever. I mean, surely uh, there's nothing. They don't really interact at all in Marvel. I think like Prey is the only real time they get to have a little chat in Marvel UK. Yes, uh, actually, I'd say you're right there because uh, certainly so we didn't get much chance for one-on-one chats in any of the Marvel stuff. Uh, it's like After Death when they're playing top crumps with combiners. <laughs> uh, one another is. Uh, a conversation with Spring Samai, but it's not, it's not really anything that's got any depth to it at all. Hmm. Uh, Generation 2, maybe, when they're running along and banter. Yeah, they have some banter. 
and a little bit of reflection. But sort of half of each issue is just them talking to one another, uh, give or take, so that's basically a full... It's close as nothing to a full issue of the Optimus and Megatron talking, which uh, I would certainly say is unprecedented. Mm. Uh, but really hasn't been done again since to the same level, uh, even in uh, Dark Cybertron or uh, World Shut Your Mouth. Like, they're never really alone in any of that stuff. It's like a, there's, the, a bit... there's the bit in the cell, but that's that's there's not much talking there. It's a bit more artful. Prime tells him and he weeps. Obviously, uh, this is setting up a lot of stuff for the IDW continuity. All these battles that get mentioned, I think, have cropped up again. We get Megatron's sated philosophy. Here's something I really like, is that he, when he's taunting Prime, he's saying, oh, the infallible Optimus Prime. I think it comes clear when he's talking about his perfect world, you know, the let's play a game, okay, I'm dead, yeah. everyone's dead. Uh, Megatron kind of says that he wants to end up as the infallible man, he wants to be Optimus Prime. He's got this like, he's got this little kid's idea of a perfect world where he obviously hasn't filled in the details of, <laughs> of actual governance. And the person who he wants to be is Prime. Just this like utterly charismatic. Uh, uh, everyone is in his thrall, and they don't mind being in his thrall. He says like, oh, what about personal freedom? Well, they won't mind that. Like, Prime's a tyrant. He's a he's a theocrat, yes, yeah. and you know, when even you see him, even when he was back as a policeman, like he has this command over people that comes easily that they and they don't mind it, and that's what Megatron wants. It's like it's quite sweet. <laughs> so it's sort of strange. It took them five years to do a scene where the lead villain actually said what his stated goals were. But obviously, he had plots and plans. I don't think they've ever really gone into what his, his end goal was before this. Well, I think I quite like that about the infiltration days that you have a Megatron who's kind of lost. Like, he's just snowed under this weird thing he's built, and he just doesn't really have any like hope anymore. I imagine that the Megatron we see here is that Megatron who we scratched the surface of. It might just be things lining up, but I quite like that take on Megatron. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I do like Megatron in Infiltration. I think he's one of the nice uh, and distinctive successes of that series, uh, because it's just basically the better Marvel UK Megatron. Ferber made a very sensible choice there to go sort of like the older, world-weary, bit sick of it all. Uh, it's fair to say that both before and after this, Megatron has suffered from a lot of very inconsistent writing from the different writers. Not necessarily bad takes individually, but always... The way John Barber writes Megatron is very different to the way that James Roberts writes Megatron. Yeah, he's the Bond villain. The chess... Well, the attempted chess master. Yeah, always a trick of his sleeve. Ah, ah but I knew that was going to happen. No matter how unlikely that thing happening was, or how detrimental to his own plans it was, <laughs> or he was ex- planned for it to happen. See, I, I, I maybe I'm being charitable here, but I guess that all adds up to this like this suicidal person. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very longest suicide note in history. Okay, here's here's something I was talking about with a friend the other day. She just came in and she gave me Combiner Wars Bombshell and Power Glide. And she told me... Oh, I wish I had friends like that. She gets oh. friends like that. And she told me about what's happening in Russia these days with death rates. People in Russia are dying far more often of little accidents. They just don't go to the doctor after, you know, cutting themselves in the kitchen. And they, like, fall in the shower. 
Uh, and it's you know it's not to do with drinking. Other countries have higher alcohol consumption rates than Russia, and people die of cancer and heart disease the same as they do in other parts of the world. There's a, a kind of a whimsical idea that people are dying because they just don't bother to you know put a shower mat down, or they don't bother to be careful, or put a, a plaster on a minor wound. Everything about their society tells them that they're worthless and expendable. And that leads to people not caring about themselves. And that, that made me think of Megatron here, because the whole thing which, which radicalizes him is being told that he's a nobody. And that's what he taunts Prime with. He says, you are only somebody because of me. Otherwise, you would be this unremarkable person, which isn't true. We know that's not true, but it gets to Prime. And it is it really it, it's it, that's the starting point. That's where you start with Megatron. He doesn't want to be nobody. He wants to be prime. He wants to be important. He and he'll even be a cartoon villain in order to be important. He'll even say, "I'm going to kill everybody. I hate everybody." When he, you, Ooh, you, is that your Megatron voice? I like that. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact, my favourite part of uh, the entire two issues is it's when Prearm is doing the interview with Megatron. And Spriggard's presented as quite a nice uh, character. You know, he's likeable. He's, a, he's a British Bobby. Yeah, he meant to feel something uh, when he dies in the next issue and all that. Mm. Uh, but even he, when he's interviewing Megatron, just casually asks a racist question. So not everybody's evil. It's a sin of, uh, sin of omission. Men are ingrained to treat these people, even the nice people. Um, I'm from South Africa, and that bit, that's my favourite bit too, because that rings so true. You know, there's the, the, the very obvious mention of apartheid. But when I came to England, I was moving house, and in order to move house, I got a shopping trolley, and I loaded it up with plastic bags full of all my things. And obviously that was suspicious behavior and I'd been uh, seen on some CCTV cameras and there were some policemen waiting for me when I came back to my house when I was, you know, in between loads. I'd I'd never had an encounter with English policemen before this. Policemen in South Africa are just like, if policemen are at your house, then like you're going to have a very bad day. Yes. uh, One of my former managers was the next South African policeman. Oh, yes. Yes. You've mentioned him. Yeah. of an age where he would have been a policeman during the apartheid era and the Santa Jake was uh, the one place you go where, where he could carry on acting like an apartheid era. <laughs> 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 the policeman was Tesco. <laughs> very, uh, very exportable, those skills. Very just, um, anyway, so a bit, of, a bit of something in the air and I see these policemen. Like, okay, well, you know, it's, it should be nice. You know, I think thin, thin blue line. I'm sure it'll be fine. And, and the thing they seem most concerned with is I had this little notebook with a list of races on it. And this is, it's illegal in South Africa to ask people what their race is because, you know, they tried that out and it yeah, went to some dark places. So, and I guess this is it's obvious. You can just, behind everything an English policeman does, you can feel this sort of committee deciding on the best, on the, the most proper course of action. And uh, and so, you know, took a few questions, took my address, explained what I was doing, said I would return the shopping trolley <laughs> to the bus stop where I found it. Good. That's, uh, that's a very important... As a supermarket worker, that is appreciated. <laughs> and um, 
uh, yeah, and yeah, so it just shows me this list of different races I may be, and doesn't ask me what race I am, but asks me to point to one that I definitely am not, or am. You know, they want to know <laughs> if I'm a gypsy for their records. I guess I don't know. But I was like, wow, this is like, I'm, this, they're being very polite to me and they're absolutely not assaulting me or, you know, this is actually all going quite pleasantly. But like, this is one of the most monstrous things I've ever seen. Yeah, what, what would they have done to you if you had been a gypsy? But because I am a gypsy, I want to know if I should be taking, taking that form. If oh, no, no, no. It's, not it. It's a trap. It's a trap every time. But yeah, yeah. And then, then satisfied that I was, not gonna I, go I was in possession of a shopping trolley. <laughs> Without being of a certain race, uh, they left. Well, that is insane. Uh, <laughs> uh, the analogy I was going to make, uh, which isn't as sweet as that, uh, and also that's a horrible thing, uh, but that's quite amusing, is uh, the uh, stuff that's going on in America recently with their complete inability to not shoot any black person they try to arrest. I Even did... now, in a supposedly very civilised and accommodating country, they have these issues... A real widespread one. And yeah, I, I, I get the feeling that um, this story, chaos theory, this uh, idea of Megatron becoming radicalized would have been very different if an American had thought of it. Yes, yes. So it's also, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, British culture uh, and ideas seen through all of James Roberts' stuff, which weirdly seems to annoy a lot of Americans who go, oh, it's so British, all these characters. I find that really off pussy because everyone in all aliens should talk and act like americans obviously it's uh the idea of any of them talking acting like british people is utterly ludicrous <laughs> yeah i find that pretty entertaining especially in the light of how all good writing comes from it's, it's about a description of a contemporary place you know even if you're writing about the past even if you're writing about aliens like you really if you want to do it right you write about what you, you know, where you are from. something I read, uh, oh, I can't remember, uh, Robert Silverberg, I think. Uh, somebody oh, yeah. who has a regular co- column in uh, Asimov's at the moment. Uh, but it's somebody about vintage, and they were talking about how, uh, in their view, uh, bad science fiction will try too hard to write the aliens and people in the future as aliens. Uh, they're throwing lots of, uh, rather than you know, I took my hand and looked at my watch and it was caught up past nine but I say I, I took my ventral slaying claw I looked at my space chronometer and it was 8.4 microspans since Spaldulu and uh, he says all of that is just uh, trying too hard and distracts from what the actual meat of the story is yeah um, this isn't about Unless, unless, unless you're making something which is about, uh, you know, uh, uh, cultural increments of time, that's all. That's either flavour or unnecessary. I mean, here, there's not even like the usual uh, made-up space swearing stuff you usually get in Transformers. There's like a hell and uh, probably a couple other bits like that. So he's, he's just very much writing them as humans. So I certainly agree this isn't what an American writer would have done. But as I say, before anybody might seen, but the American writer would have done it worse. Uh, this way it would have been different and reflected their cultural history far far, far more directly. Because of course in America, apartheid uh, in the 50s and so on was far more rigidly forced, uh, segregation and so on. Uh, whilst in this country, uh, that sort of state-sanctioned racism is far more like what you encountered 
where everybody's very polite and there's nothing official. But if you're a certain type of person, your 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 life is basically shit. Yeah, it's 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 insidious. It is, of course, after um, Spring Arms, you get a whirl bit. Oh, yeah. Which is wound up as massively significant. Well, in theory, anyway, we've sort of mentioned it once since they've both been on the Lost Lives and it's not come up again yet. But <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it will. Well, I like that. I like that, you know, they haven't made too much out of the fact that World started everything because, like, a lot of things started it. And it's... Clearly, it, as we said, what happened just before it, and that's yeah. like... The cumulative effect of all those little moments, I think, probably made more of a thing than the uh, the beat scene did. I'm just speculating here whether or not uh, the particulars of Imperata had been laid down in Roberts's head. Oh, well, the Institute does get mentioned uh, near the end. Ah, yeah. And of course, uh, the, the mysterious unnamed senator pops up as well. Uh, though I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, that hadn't been uh, established as uh, he had thought this character was going to be Shockwave yet. That's something he started thinking about afterwards when he thought, would it be fun to do something like this? Mm. Certainly, I think the pieces are in place there, even if we maybe didn't know what the, the Institute as a word meant yet. Yeah, you've got to throw out a nefarious organization which you can make use of when you need one you gotta throw out a kindly avuncular senator who might turn out to be somebody else in fact i should say uh, as, uh if i recall correctly that uh, the opening scene in uh, macadams that scene was not written with uh, the knowledge that it would later be part of back to the future style thing uh, the second scene from uh, the first part of shadow play was Oh, the quark bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, he knew what was going to happen then when he wrote that, but this wasn't. Uh, there is serendipity here with a lot of this. Yeah, that's fine. That, that's part of the fun, I think. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting choice in Will as well. I, I guess he knew Will was going to be one of his main characters in War of the at this point. Oh, of course, so yeah. So it's obviously giving him a, uh, a, a hell of a lot of... Uh, saying out Will saw, because he hadn't really... Done, I don't think he'd been in IDW before, had he? Other than in the background of uh, Wreckers? It was in... Had oh, he I think he was on a cover of Stormbringer. Hey, do you think uh, he, Roberts would have had all the extra backstory with uh, what had happened to Will at this point? Or well, is he just a bit pissed off and venting? Well, to me, the the whole essence of Whirl is that he is a victim who becomes an aggressor, right? He's this, like, uh, alternate universe Megatron. But he doesn't have any kind of spark to him. He doesn't have any kind of intellectual inner life that goes anywhere. So he doesn't have any drive. So he gets, he, you know, he, he has his ambitions. He is, just, he is destroyed for those ambitions. And then just becomes the destroyer. And that's it. And then there's not much more to him, really. And that, like, obviously upsets him, but that's the way he is. And he's, he's like, not at peace with that. He has embraced that. And, of course, uh, tying into what we're saying about the, the uh, uh, insidious nature of the uh, system here, Springarm, even though he's presented as the nice one, doesn't report what Will does. No. Uh, there's no indication that a right backs ever finds out what happens in that set. Well, uh, at least at the time, uh, but he ever fought, finds out what happens in that cell. Uh, maybe at some point years later he did when he recruited Will, but like, uh, he happily keeps that a secret. Uh, well, he, I mean, you're seeing what happens to him later on, he was right to. Uh, you know, he may be part of the oppressive system, but his life is very much in danger if he 
stepped out, stepped out of line. Yeah. Oh, oh, spring arms are uh, part of one of my other favorite bits of the. Oh, uh, well, yes. What's your other favorite bit? Yeah, he's talking to Prime about the Matrix. He's just talking about like having a um, you know a very Christian faith, and Prime is agnostic, and he says the Matrix is just a bauble. Yeah, I actually thought that bit was a bit too cute. Yeah, you know, having oh the guy who ends up carrying the Matrix and becoming a religious leader. He's <laughs> not religious beforehand. Ah. Well, uh, I don't know. That's like that's something that's never been done with Prime. Well, actually, I suppose that's not true because he doubts Primus to his face in in the old Marvel, but it's not developed very much. The idea that he becomes this demagogue, this religious demagogue, but then never saw anything to actually make him believe during that whole experience. That's um, that's something you don't really see amongst, like, paladins. Probably worth mentioning that this story establishes a hell of a lot about the RDW Matrix. I think up to this point, it had literally just been the magic bauble in it, Prime's chest and occasionally elsewhere. Uh, I don't think there had been anything established about what it really was or uh, its overall significance. It was just... To set relied on the reader having a prior knowledge of Transformers to an extent. Yeah. Oh, the Matrix. Something stuff's really important now. I I don't actually I don't like that about this story. I think it tries to grab the Matrix in a way that seems uh, a bit petty. It was possibly important considering it was going to be uh, significant to the wrap up of uh, Chaos. Yeah. I wonder if they thought maybe we ought to you know do something about the Matrix beforehand so it's not complete. Yeah, say what what the hell it might be. Do and they it's, use it's still... Do they use the Matrix in Chaos? Well, yeah, because it's all drained afterwards, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, uh, I can't uh, remember exactly <laughs> what they do. Uh, Something drains this. Yeah, when Megatron ejaculates in that monster's face. Oh yeah, yeah. You gotta so, do that uh, once a t- once every while. Plain expects about uh, what it might really be. You know, uh, this is the first story where in IWA it's called the Creation Matrix. Oh yeah, of course, because he's setting up. Uh, the uh, constructed cold uh, forged difference. Yeah. That's that's what he's doing, isn't he? But it's basically says it doesn't say this is the creation matrix. It says the Knights of Cybertron called it the creation matrix. There's like a couple of layers. It's not like this is an unequivocal truth. This is something some mystical guy said once that may or may not be true, depending on your point of view. And that's very much keeping with what you try to do. And John Barber tries to do as well, like the first. Year or so, if you're going up to that point, we had to go. You know, there's 13 primes. Uh, there's an enigma of combination. These are things definitely happen on panel. <laughs> oh, because I guess Shockwave would know about the bleeding of the Matrix. He, I mean, Shockwave clearly is into the Matrix. He goes around putting Matrix chambers into people's. To, you know, drops this hint about the creation Matrix. The interesting thing is at this point, uh, Shockwave is presented as a benign figure. Uh, yeah, so but he wa- he wants a figurehead. Uh, even before uh, we find out who he really is, uh, a lot of shadow play does make him seem like a creepy, scary bastard. Particularly because, of course, yeah, Robert hadn't decided who he really was at this point. But uh, there's a whole idea of uh, him recruiting different people and giving them all matrix-shaped holes in their <laughs> chest, which uh, is an idea I love. He's like, got lots of dominoes lined up. I want to know who else some of them uh, Ryan and Zeta did he do this to? There are like dozens of Autobots with <laughs> chest cavities walking around who think they're his best mate. <laughs> I think Good Shockwave is a very interesting character because of it, because he's, he has all those same hallmarks of being the the master strategist, but then you know just being a lot more personable about it. So the other thing to mention is Optimus fried Megatron VVH. 
Yep, yeah, he did yeah. it. He executed a prisoner. And I love how yeah, Mega Supreme is a really underwritten character everywhere, but it really works here. We're just like, yeah, I stopped you from doing that because you shouldn't have done that. Bye. I like how what, Omega what Supreme has this moral position above Prime at all times. Yeah, what about being used as your transportation? I'm a significant character. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can argue a lot of the fuff about whether they should execute Megatron or not. Is a bit forced in that mighty sane definition you would just kill him. It's an old sort of Joker thing where, you know, Batman's moral position to kill him a Joker in the context of a fictional universe really doesn't make sense because... The Joker always escapes from prison. I've not even discussed the fact that might be prisoned forever. Uh, which I think in the original script makes it a bit more clear that they would take your spark out and put it in a box. That would be the imprisonment. Ah, but there's no such thing box. as a white-out vacuum. Yeah, they're talking about like being ostracised by the galactic community, but they're already ostracised by the galactic community, so it's hard to see what would be the downside if they just <laughs> killed him at this point. Yeah, what are they going to do? Um, I, 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 I like the idea that you know Prime has tried to kill Megatron. Bumblebee has tried to kill Megatron. Right, explicitly, they knew exactly what they're doing. They had enough. Just kill him right now for plot reasons that didn't work. At least they tried. And I should say I'm against executing prisoners in real life because they yeah, they can't usually escape from good prisons because good prisoners are usually more competent than Darius uh, <laughs> Snide or Arkham Asylum. <laughs> How did Fortress Maximus ever get a job after that? I didn't. No, he's a, he's a junior appointed enforcer of the Tyrest Accord. Oh, the Tyrest Accord, which no longer exists. <laughs> yeah, but I was saying, just a way of getting rid of him. Yeah, you go on, Fort Max, you useless prison warden who thought the best way to stop a prison break was letting your psycho prisoner out to go chase them around. Yeah, you, you go. Don't hurry back. <laughs> oh, and you can hang out with Red Alert, the really other amazing security guard we have. Yeah, but maybe do have security issues, don't they? All these alcoholics or inept. I guess in a war, those are the people you'd kill first. <laughs> what, uh, the useless security people? No, the useful ones. Ah. Uh, on to the second part, then, uh, the Optimus Prime theme part. The first time Optimus Prime has ever been a policeman in his previous life. Yeah, it totally was. I was a little miffed that he wasn't a medic because that one page in a Marvel UK annual said he was. Yeah, what's this James Roberts contradicting Marvel UK material? What the hell? <laughs> but it, it, it really works. It's it's something that... Um, it's a very inspired move. Uh, well, he... uh, interestingly, a lot of people talk about you know, uh, who is James Roberts Mary Sue in more ETI. And I, I've heard a lot of different characters come up I don't know, well, this is just James Roberts writing himself. You know, people say wrong, they say skins, uh, they say swerve, a couple of others as well. I think that probably shows that he's putting a lot of himself into every character uh, rather than uh, just for one. Uh, what I find interesting in the script to part two, there's a point when Artemis comes into the, uh, the prison after fighting all smash up, but he's described as coming in, holding gun up to his face and the script simply says this is a thing real cops do as far as I'm aware though I left the force years ago so uh, I, maybe he's joking when he says that I go, oh, I'm a policeman so I know what happens what real policemen do haha <laughs> but the implication there that he himself worked in law enforcement and he's made Optimus Prime a law enforcer is something I quite find quite interesting um, feels like he's putting a lot of himself in the character by being the one. I'm assuming it's his decision to make Prime a policeman. I imagine he 
would have had to have been just by the you know just by the by the world being the world he would probably have been the kind of policeman that spring arm is but he would have wanted to have been the kind of policeman that ryan pax is yes oh in fact i thought i've just had uh is that this is of course the same story but establishes for the first time that megatron used to be a writer oh yeah megatron so writer your favorite characters in uh in their newly established backstories here but it's a bit of his heart and soul into both of them. Yeah, so this sort of also sets up all the uh, Shadow Plague era uh, flashbacks we get in more Mitsui, where there seems to be a very conscious effort here to make Optimus Prime a really cool, awesome guy. Even with his doubts about the Senate, this is an introspective, worried or uh, doubtful character as he so often returned in the present day. Because uh, remember, in the in the ongoing at this point, Optimus Prime had surrendered to Spike uh, for some yes. reason. Uh, you know, and he was in a he was in a funk. I think it, it does really well because we haven't really seen him at his best. No, he's uh, he's had a uh, a lot of problems over the RDW run at this point, and indeed will continue to have for the next. Uh, couple of years where he's not quite as secured himself by the time we see him in in infiltration you know he's like he's distant and and you know he's, he's had this command level existence i think they call it and that's cool that's, a, that's an interesting take on the character but yeah it only really makes sense it only really makes sense because we know prime a certain way so this is just a fantastic way to actually get that in the text rather than in the in the meta uh, sense prime used to be this damn hero and he's that of course that's been chipped away over the millennia oh one thing i want to mention before we go totally off the rails sentinel prime is very interesting here sentinel prime was a bit of an odd character in spotlight megatron in that he is prime but he's treated as like a police captain mm. uh, in that story of an enemy more significant I thought I, th- I liked that take on Sentinel Prime. I like the idea that Prime didn't, at this point, didn't quite mean what it does. Well, it's not inherently a wrong take, uh, but it doesn't quite seem to fit in with everything else going on around it. <laughs> so it is, it is interesting to see him again here as an ambig- ambiguously. Uh, he's, a bit, he's a bit of a tough guess in Megatron Origin, but he's not necessarily a bad person as such. He's not particularly involved with anything too dicey. He just wants to... S- just sort Megatron's uh, shit out. Because why wouldn't yeah. you, really? That is his job. Uh, here, he's just ambiguously a uh, a bad guy. In yeah, his he's... attitude towards uh, Pax. He's not, he, he, you know, not stop the intruder, it's kill the intruder. Oh, no, but he does, you know, he, 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 he wants, you know, he does the thing. Let him talk. I want to see what he says. Yeah, that's a bit weird. That's sort of contra... That's slightly... It's like uh, there's an episode of The Simpsons where uh, <laughs> I think it's Homer. He goes on TV and he's being made, like, uh, interrupted to start giving a speech. And up in the booth, uh, the guy operating the buttons going, you know, should we stop them? And the director just goes, no, no, I'm quitting tomorrow. Let them go on. <laughs> it feels a bit like that. It's like, a bit blasé about this all of a sudden. Well, again, maybe papering over some of the cracks all by myself here. Uh, in Megatron Origin, Sentinel is the Senate's bully boy, but he doesn't particularly like the Senate. I'll, I'll take your word for it on that interpretation, because I can't quite remember. Uh, other than that, uh, I'm 
Sean said it had been killed about 50 times in IW now in different uh, iterations of it. I can't really remember what happens with him in that. There's a lot of them. I'm just looking at the background here. There's all sorts of guys in the Senate. Of course, the Senate approached us here for the first time as well, uh, giving his uh, big speech. Feels evocative of the speech the Emperor gives at the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith, where he's going, yeah, we're going to clamp down on all your civil liberties um, or detain anyone without a valid serial code. That's kind of interesting, isn't yeah. it? We'll restrict passage across the orbital borders. That doesn't make sense, but whatever. We'll round up the agitators and the dissidents. We'll detain anyone without a valid serial code. Curfews, containment, capital punishment. Uh, and of course, we had historical precedents. Uh, not not Godwin things or going Nazis, but obviously that's uh, probably the most significant one uh, uh, in real history. And probably all these other examples have took uh, a great deal of inspiration from. A valid serial code is like sci-fi robot speak for passbook. Yes, yeah. That's, uh, or privilege of birth. Who doesn't have a... I mean, we know Megatron doesn't have a valid serial code because of time travel shenanigans, but um, yeah, I guess there must be a whole effective class of people who don't have that. People who are built like the Dinobots in the cartoons, like hobbyist Transformers. <laughs> well, I, I, I would go with Apartheid against such cartoon Dinobots. I, I'm down <laughs> with that. Lock them in a cupboard. And then, of course, in further politics, Optimus Prime, Orion Pack, sorry, it's because I've read the script, but it's called Optimus throughout uh, just before this, uh, gives his Tony Benn impression. Tony Benn speech, yeah. Now, when did Tony Benn die? It was, uh, he actually died... Uh, after this. After uh, this, it, okay. Uh, Last year or a couple of years so ago. It wasn't exactly ripped from the headlines. Well, it's an old. Uh, this is uh, the Adobe Iraq War, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, speech originally said uh, about five or six years before this comic. Eight years beforehand, to give or take. I mean, I, I not. It was, heard it, I mean, it's a great speech. It's when uh, Tony Benn says why uh, we should all call ourselves Autobots. Yeah, he cut the Hasbro <laughs> system with Tony Benn calling the team. <laughs> <laughs> I demanded that he do it. And he was like, that's a really fair to my... I'm actually pro Iraq. <laughs> oh, I have to change my whole speech now. It's a fit in this. I, I was not aware of his speech. Obviously, I knew who Tony Benn was. And uh, he's quite an interesting British political figure because, it, because he becomes more left-wing as he gets older, which is almost a reverse. Now, I only became aware of this after Tony Benn died, uh, when Atis Lag said, oh, you know, have you noticed that this script bit of chaos theory is identical to something Tony Benn said before? I don't think anybody else has ever pointed this out before then, uh, maybe because British political commentators are fit on the ground in Transformers readers, I don't know. But it's, it's just a very interesting choice. In fact, of course, it's not... Uh, Prime's words, these are his quotes, they're Megatron's. Uh, knowing the little I do about James Roberts's uh, political affiliations, I don't think he'd want to directly compare Tony Benn to uh, Saturday morning cartoon villain Megatron. But um, uh, yeah, I think it's more that this is something obviously he's been thinking about for a little while and this is the most interesting person to put it in the mouth of. Not Megatron as we know him, but Megatron as he was before he'd done anything bad, when all he'd done was write some scathing critiques of the ruling class. Rough analogy would be that both of them became much more extreme politically as they got older. Hmm. Uh, but also in a much nicer way for Tony Benn. I suppose Megatron's like a reverse Nelson Mandela who like started out uh, thinking violent action was perfectly necessary and just... And then, you know, kind of mellowed after a spell in prison. Yeah, kind of meet each other on the way down or up. 
And as soon as we talk about people who both really didn't get on with Margaret Thatcher, are the people who are uh, we're being, political figures we're being asked to uh, think of here. Does that make the Senate Thatcher? <laughs> the Senate's really ill-defined in what they represent. Um, I think that's probably on purpose because we can project uh, all of our totalitarian uh, um, uh, fears onto them. Again, I, I think it's, uh, again, also down to the fact that the different writers have all had drastically different takes yeah, said it. Including how they should all die. <laughs> Everyone agrees that they should all die. Starscream being involved in some way. It's not clear right now the split between the functionists and the Senate. That only actually became explicit uh, in Elegant Chaos. Yes, uh, fairly recently. So I don't know again how much of uh, we see our plan at the time or how much it is in realizing that a lot of what you'd said about Cybertronian government beforehand by himself and all the other authors didn't really connect up properly so he needed to do something to uh, make the pieces fall together a bit neater no I'd say that it's it's fairly well formed by the time uh, 3 of 12 uh, comes to consecrate Overlord Spark it's just we didn't yeah, notice yes, it that's a, uh, that's a good point uh, maybe, maybe he's going to piece it together here I mean, there, there are bits of elegant uh, uh, chaos where uh, it is making things that quite work fit a bit better. I think he's uh, acknowledged that there's a line in there about the calendar changing. Uh. But, uh, liberally to deal with the fact that no two writers have ever made the, the Cybertronian timescale ever work in the same way. That's sweet. That is something which only about three people on the planet care about. Uh, of course, oh, and the other thing uh, we get at the end is the Ark One Memorial. Uh, which I don't think we've seen before, have we? It's uh, before this point. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, obviously, the, the meeting between uh, mysterious unnamed senator and uh, Orion is going to become a recurring thing and uh, significant to the end of Dark Cybertron in that uh, totally unpredictable way it ended where they appealed to his humanity, which nobody guessed beforehand uh, that that was how it was going to end. I quite like that ending of Dark Side. I don't, I don't have much time for Dark Cybertron, but I thought that whole that shockwave resolution was as good as it could have been. I, don't know, I think the end of Dark Cybertron's a lot better than most of Dark Cybertron. It's just that is how everybody thought it was going to end after the first issue. <laughs> but uh, so this is their bench. This is their bench, which isn't a very good bench. Yes, if anybody was, if anybody they thought to know in advance, uh, they could have drawn it at a slight wonky angle. <laughs> um, the little touch of I, it's some sort of unnamed prime figure in the Senate. He looks a lot like Grimlock, actually, the way Milne draws him. Draws him. Right, where, uh, was it Primer? He's got the Matrix as his sword hilt. You've got this overhead uh, shot of the Senate, and they've got this big. Oh, get away! He does look at yes. It's someone, to, someone for everybody. Uh, freedom is the right of all civilized beings. Yes, yes. Uh, that's very British. That's the most British thing you could say. Yes, very. Uh, you could imagine that being a motto of the Empire, can't you? <laughs> yes, it's, uh... Of course, it has this menace to it, but like you can see how people would get behind it. Uh, yes, it's uh, again the insidious thing again. There's also a hell of a lot of thought we put into this uh, beforehand, and I believe uh, also it went through a lot of different iterations, uh, the scripts and the ideas about what this was going to be. I mean, the scripts uh, I bought from Roberts, this uh, is the one that has evolved the most. I mean, maybe that's why some of the things don't quite fit in with the ongoing, because it seems to be worked out, worked on 
quite a long way in advance and maybe not the same speed the customer's working on his stuff. Oh, I want to tell you one thing that annoys me. <laughs> oh, go on. Tell me one thing that annoys me. Okay, so this is... This is something which uh, kind of takes me out of the story because it's something that Bob Bodiansky has said in interviews that Megatron is named for neutron bombs because they were a big issue in the 80s. And at the end of of the first issue of Chaos Theory of 22, uh, Megatron says, you know, it's not Tron as in electronic, it's Tron as in neutron as in the bomb. And like, oh, Megatron's thinking of becoming radical. He's going to throw his, his data pad into the thing. But like, you know, neutrons aren't just about bombs. And also, neutron bombs wouldn't really hurt Transformers. Because they, they shoot out a load of gamma rays, and Transformers can exist unprotected in space. Right, ruined Chaos Theory. <laughs> and also, uh, simply talking about, is the art. This is yes, the, uh, yeah, we need to come around to build Robert's collaboration. Obviously, of course, before this, it had been Robert's Roach seen as a team, and uh, two pigs uh, even being called uh, Roach Arts by some people, mainly me. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, the uh, art here is incredibly strong. I don't think it's interesting it's Alex Mill doing his Alex Mill thing before the Nick Roach influence uh, from having to follow along with more of a big TI. Mm. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't look like any of their other stuff done together. It's very much sort of classic uh, Nick Roach, but I think it's uh, certainly amongst his best work up to this point and this is a hell of a detailed script so I should add as well there's an insane amount of detail in every panel helps him uh, about a bit more about some of the scripts he's had in the past that were a bit more uh, fast and loose and I'd say it's uh, the main difference it's, yeah, obviously it's a lot of detail here but it's not as over detailed as I think uh, a lot of his early earlier work suffered from I think there are panels in the chronology where it's, there's so many detail in there it, becomes a bit too dense for it's more of a happy medium uh, i would say absolutely that's also because because the scripting so tight milne uh, said that in megatron origin there'd be scenes just like oh uh here's a crowd scene draw a few familiar faces in there maybe a bit late on this but the colors are super nice indeed uh yes yes it, it looks great it's got a nice uh it's it's only enough not like her work of comic at the moment i think uh she's very much influenced by uh uh, Josh Burkham, was it? Who did it before? One more VTI? Yeah. Uh, but uh, his uh, sort of uh, longer, more, more pastel style is uh, more like what she's doing at the moment on more VTI. Um, obviously, it's a bit darker and uh, grittier. So it's interesting, it's like the same art team as, a moment, uh, as it is at the moment, but they're not quite where they are. Uh, it's perhaps, uh, it's very good, but it's still a bit of a work in progress towards what we now expect from them. Mm. There's one thing I've just noticed. Oh, go on. Uh, issue 22 is edited by everyone's favourite Andy Schmidt. With Which... assistant editor Carlos Guzman, 23 is edited entirely by Carlos Guzman. That's interesting. Uh, I guess it's headed towards a point uh, where Smith was uh, getting ready to leave, wasn't he? So maybe he had to take an issue, uh, a couple of issues off. Interestingly, uh, because I can be quite hard on Andy Smith uh, when I talk about him, but... Uh, Publicly, I've uh, only ever heard both James Roberts and Nick Roach say nice things about him uh, with how hard uh, they, they push them to constantly, uh, especially with Wreckers. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a bit easier with uh, Chaos Theory, but he did, really did drive them hard to make Wreckers the best it po- could possibly be and just not accept the first, second, third, fourth or fifth draft, but uh, constantly reworking it. 
uh, which I would say was uh, only worth out of a better bit of a comic uh, compared to some of uh, what we know about the earlier drafts from what I contained within the hardback. Oh, yeah, jeez. Well, I certainly think uh, we are in a better place having John Barber in the comics. Yeah, well, also Carlos Guzman, who often gets oh, ignored in these kind of things. But then here, here is the first of Carlos Guzman. A good start out the door. Also, with Barber, you do wonder how much accredited he does with Barber, where it's like on the old comic where uh, Richard Sarkin was editing Furman on British stuff and he would just basically be breaks it down and have a point. And Furman would go, I'm doing this, this issue. And Guzman would go, great, you do that. And <laughs> Sarkin would go... Because it wasn't, hasn't been doing it that long. Uh, Sarkis would go, yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, maybe put a Decepticon in it on page eight. Yeah, great. Yeah, have another point. It's worth mentioning this is a very confused time for the comics about what was going to happen next. Mm. Um, originally, Chaos was going to be a separate miniseries. Mm-hmm. For, that's a weird thing with Heart of Darkness where they said, oh, nobody likes miniseries. So we're not gonna, it's not going to be a miniseries now. Well, I would say nobody likes Heart of Darkness. It's a true fair. But, uh, Things are shifting about when they're going to happen in relation to one another. Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning were going to be writers of one of the ongoings. We're going to replace this. Uh, so they were involved heavily in the talks about what's going to come next. I think uh, Mike Costa was going to carry on as uh, well at one point. Uh, so it would like be the two books would have been Mike Costa and uh, Dan, uh, Dan and Andy. I think uh, Mike pulled out first and then it was going to be them and John Barber so it's a weird universe where it's not really like uh, Abnett and Lanning writing uh, more of a big TI oh. so it's amazing actually this comic uh, turns out as good as it does uh, yeah yeah all the tumult it was and around a, a, uh, an explanation for why the issues around it turned out as odd as they do as well that's saying uh, nobody really knows what's happening next uh, so it's sort of quite remarkable that this is even readable really <laughs> I was just sort of reading over it again and like, you know, they wouldn't even say electronic, would they? They would say electron. Well, it's just all of that you would have read about one panel you hate. It's just, I, you know, I hate over and over and over to get angrier and angrier. Maybe flick back and look at Mac, Mac Adams and get me angrier. <laughs> I don't really feel that I have any useful input that would improve uh, these stories, but I feel like I could... I feel, like, I feel like maybe James Roberts should read a science textbook. <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe you should uh, take a picture to him. <laughs> yeah, just like, I can teach you GCSE physics and you'll have... <laughs> you'll be able to make slightly but, more appropriate references. <laughs> maybe uh, give Alex Mills lessons as well. So on the first present day page in the second issue, Omega Supreme is fly past like Saturn and half a planet. Oh, Which I would what? say, what? It's, what? It's hard. Completely scientifically unlikely. It looks like Praxis from Star Trek VI, uh, that one moon. Oh my god, yes. Uh, there's a, there was a lot of that around 2010. The broken up planets. So uh, you. So it's, it's, it's Star Trek. It's Star Trek. Star Trek 2009 had the Klingon, I don't know, something going yeah, on. But- it's uh, the Cleon Moon Praxis when it exploded. Oh, okay. You said that already. Okay. I... <laughs> I'll say it again. <laughs> See, I only know Praxis. I thought Praxis was a Transformers thing. I thought it was a, a name of a place. Okay, I, I, I think I'm halfway between Straxis and Polyhex. Well, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Jeez. Gravity. Alex, gravity doesn't work that way. 
God, ter- oh, oh, you've turned me completely against this comic now. Well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, so, uh, whatever lasting twist. I don't want to beat people over the head in the fact I have a script. But I do have a script. Is at the end of uh, the two uh, pitches for the second one, there's this paragraph, which I would like to read out. NB, I like to think that as well as giving the reader the lowdown on how Optimus started out on the road towards leadership, this story sows the seeds for other stories set before the war. Imagine, Optimus builds up a rebel cell of freedom fighters to fight a planet-wide conspiracy. Dot, dot, dot. So he already had all that in his head at this stage it's pretty impressive because I think uh, the pitches may not have even been written before uh, he knew he'd be writing a uh, ongoing so mm. at the end there that's just him uh, shilling for more work <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah well he does it well do you think if he do you think to his friends do you think like the Bumblebee's Nine Hinds of the world do you think they got some of his badges some of his trophies as their auto brand you know I saw well, because obviously uh, Megatron suggests that, uh, that they also brandy just want to grab off any dead body. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. They, they did, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, yeah, I'll have one of these. That's quite nice to wear. So maybe Bumblebee's auto brand is also uh, Ryan Pax's commendation for bravery. And that's why what? Megatron keeps it so close to his heart. Oh, that's padding well, all sorts of layers, yeah. <laughs> Tom, any final thoughts on this issue before we wrap up? Chaos Theory is a very important uh, two-parter. Not only does it match Alex Milne with James Roberts, but it sets up all sorts of nice plot things and, you know, really gives us a definitive view on what Megatron and Orion Pax are about. It's flawed in that it's stuck within this matrix of a series that didn't quite know where it was going or where it would end up but that was kind of in retrospect it makes it a bit more interesting it gives us more to talk about uh, for myself i would agree uh, i'd already read records so once i heard that james roberts uh, was uh, doing another one by himself i went and uh, i bought the comics at auto assembly they had both issues there and uh, got them signed, went to get it signed by Nick Roach, because I hadn't realised he wasn't drawing it, so that's uh, <laughs> how out of the loop I was. Hey, love that. Uh, I just assumed that's a James Robert Twisted comic, uh, Nick Roach will be drawing it, that's what he does. So, you know, I'd given up on Transformers comics. Uh, this is like uh, the ex-crack addict, and you've got them back on the crack with me, so I'll be reading the, uh, the two books when they start up in the new year. <laughs> you, you've made me a crack whore again, James Roberts, damn you! Hmm. <laughs> Oh uh, yes, yeah, so, so this got me back into uh, comics. This was the tip of my toe of water to see how the new writer would uh, work out. So it must have been announced by this point more than meets the eye then. And uh, I was like, yep, yeah, certainly this is good enough for me to come back from the cold. We'll be back in after, after so we practically giving up on it. So it's a key issue, and I suspect it did have a lot of uh, fans who drifted away by that point as well. Including me! Yes, including you! I didn't even realise that was a cue. Ah, it's, a, it's, a, it's true. True that. And next time on Podcast Maximus, uh, I am keen to do Windblade. Well, the next one that you and I do will definitely be the most recent and indeed final issue of Wind, uh, 
wind. Is it wing or wind? It's wind. wind. It's wind, Stuart. Yes, I, I better, I better learn that. Body, <laughs> uh, talk about the series as a whole. Yeah, we want to talk about the series as a whole. Uh, yes, that'll be the next issue, folks. Uh, so uh, be sure to chew in for that. Where you were listening to this from, there are links to uh, the TF Archive discussion thread about the uh, podcast as a whole. So do drop in to give us your feedback and uh, suggestions for future subjects. Uh, you can also reach myself on Twitter at, uh, at InflatableDalek. Uh, so do uh, tell and ask me anything that you'd like to hear. And uh, I'm off to uh, look at all my photos of me and my best friend, Roger Moore. So do take care of yourself. Say goodbye, Tom. Uh, goodbye, Tom. Ah, the old ones are the best. <laughs> That's why Roger Moore is your friend. Uh, yes, uh, goodbye, everybody, and thank you for listening. Okay.